Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people on the planet. For July, we have a special edition from the Center for Council. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Jared Side, who's the Executive Director of Center for Council. He has uh, designated, piloted, and coordinated council-based programs in prisons, assisted living facilities, youth groups, and a variety of nonprofits, faith-based organizations, social service, and law enforcement agencies. Let's get into the interview. During the 2020 pandemic, the death of George Floyd placed a microscope on law enforcement in the U.S. and changed how we think about progress in the U.S. The world has been in a state of chaos uh, since the start of the pandemic, and many people wonder what can be done and how can we make a change? The Center for Counsel is an organization that has worked with around 20 prisons throughout California and is the winner of the American Correctional Association's Innovations in Corrections Award. The Training Leadership Initiative, supporting emerging council leaders serving impacted communities and the council-based peace officer wellness, empathy, and resilience program called POWER for law enforcement and correctional officers. The organization is paving the way for change in this important area. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with its founder, Jared Side. Welcome, Jared. Thank you so much, Henry. I appreciate it. So um, before we get into the questions, I always like to find out why somebody uh, became the person that they are today. So um, I guess uh, you took, uh, what you do is um, interesting, I guess. How did you uh, go from, I guess, a, a young person um, and then, of course, a young man? I guess, what drew you to do what you do currently? Oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> you know, I grew up, uh, that's a big question, but uh, I, I grew up in um, a New York that does not exist anymore. It was a, an extraordinary place. It was before crack and before, you know, it was pre-AIDS. It was a, a whole different era of New York. And I was a, a kid growing up there. I was um, interested in the arts. Um, I became an actor and, and fell in with a, a crowd of folks who uh, were part of the original um, version of Fame, if anyone remembers the movie Fame. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I had a manager and we used to, and I did commercials and soap operas and a lot of theater and um you know, New York was kind of a mess. Uh, it was um, exciting and sketchy and magical and intimate and loud and honest. You know, you, you just encountered a lot of folks all the time. Um, and I was a sort of awkward and, and shy kid. Um, I loved performing because it gave me a chance to sort of find a character to inhabit inside a story, I guess. Um, and it felt right. Um, it felt like I had a story to tell just as all the people I was encountering in the streets of New York. And there was a magic to um, that place. Um, it made me really uh, want to tell stories. It made me want to build community through the encounter of really listening to another's story, whether it's something you do in the theater or at the movies or just having conversations. There was something really extraordinary about the diversity of folks that I was surrounded by that I think drew me into that. 
it, it's it's very leveling and and unifying and um, affirming of our common journey as humans. Um, and so I pursued it and I became a, an actor and then a director and a writer. And I went to England and studied classical theater and wound up in, in Hollywood in Los Angeles um, and uh, realized quickly <laughs> that authenticity was not the thing that was, um, you know, paying the big bucks. Uh, it, it felt like the work that I was doing that actually paid uh, was stuff that felt very uh, inauthentic and derivative and silly. And the stuff that was really about storytelling was really hard to pay rent with. Um, so I was in a bit of a dilemma. Um, I had a daughter at the time who was in fourth grade um, around just after uh, the Rodney King riots and a lot of unrest in uh, in L.A. And as a very involved parent um, in a public school, I was watching uh, a community that was dear to me um, falling apart, really becoming very dangerous, lots of bullying and suspicion and defensiveness, kids, parents, teachers, community members. Um, and we had heard that there was a practice of storytelling that was emerging in schools that was sort of coming in to take the place of the social emotional learning programs that were being defunded, you know, the arts programs and such. And it was really about bringing folks together to tell their stories, you know, beyond their opinions and their debates and their, you know, kind of gossiping. We tried it at the school. Um, and it was an amazing experience where just like I had felt, you know, growing up and, and being in, in shows and plays as a kid, um, here was a way to bring a group of folks together who disagreed and maybe bickered with each other until they stepped into this space where each person could talk about, you know, their dreams and their, the stories of their life, something that they remember about their grandparent or a crush growing up or their favorite cartoon when they were a kid. And all of a sudden we saw each other as humans, as full humans who, who loved their kids and wanted a community that was safe and that would be of benefit. And it, it was my, it was, you know, I, I, I had heard this concept of beloved community. You know, Dr. King would talk about beloved community and, and what it meant to be a diversity of folks where everyone could come together and be seen and feel valued and receive the care that they need. And here this was emerging right in, in my daughter's school. And I, I, I fell in love with it. It was way more uh, interesting and um, uh, inspiring than the work I was doing in Hollywood. And I decided I would turn towards it and learn how to do it and figure out what schools it was in and beyond schools, you know, what we might do with this very simple practice of coming together as a group of people and telling your story. And also at the same time, creating an environment where folks could really listen to one another and offer regard and not have to debate or kind of get caught in all the things that we disagree about, but recognize how much we have in common. And, um, it, it was, it, it took over my life. It became the thing that I felt I, I just needed to do. There was a great need, not only in schools, around Los Angeles, but in community-based organizations, uh, in law enforcement, um, with uh, businesses. Um, and in California at the time, the prisons were incredibly overcrowded, you know, uh, built for 120,000 folks. They were at, uh, I don't know, capacity of 200,000 plus crammed into these prisons. And so California was trying to find ways to bring folks who'd served their sentences back into community and they needed some way to uh, organize rehabilitative programs. And um, it seemed like an opportunity for us to step up and create something 
as a community-based organization that would give individuals who had, you know, paid their debt to society um, skills they needed to come home in a good way and re-enter society. So it, it was... Um, it was obvious that there was a great need in all kinds of sectors, and I decided that this would be my life. And very quickly, we found um, that there were a lot of resources and a lot of interest. And over the course of 10, 15 years, it has uh, expanded to be a, a very powerful and robust organization that serves um, thousands, tens of thousands of folks um, and inspires a lot of other programs around the world. So I'm thrilled to to have woken up to this great need for social connection and have capacity to uh, organize a nonprofit organization that um, brings these skills forward. That's a long answer, it, but that's, that's a journey. Uh, yes, no, but I, I like that you explain the journey because, um, you know, it, it, it kind of speaks to, um, not to be silly, but to the work that you do, that it is a journey, mm -hmm. I guess, um, uh, you know, to, to get to the core of each individual and to come at them at a, a different angle. I like that you started your, um, you know, your uh, career out in, uh, I would say the arts, right? Um, acting yeah. and, um, uh, and uh, because of that, learning the value and the appreciation of a story. And, um, and then how that then uh, tied to everything else of how then you um, you know, I've only taken one acting class and I was horrific. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so um, being able to, um, one of the things that I remember, though, is like uh, being able to really dive in and understand um, a, a, a character and get into see their perspective, um, mm -hmm. you know, is definitely, an, you know, uh, uh, well, it's not a common skills, right? Because not everybody's an actor. Right. We all we all wish we could be, but um, or uh, I guess not all of us, but a good amount. Um, mm. And and really dive in and to understand how another person is is thinking. So um, a very unique way to um, get to a totally different thing that you're doing, but in a way still the same. <laughs> Yeah. You know, my, my daughter struggles with it sometimes because she saw, you know, dad as somebody who was part of the entertainment industry and it was fancy and there were movies and premieres and things to do. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's going into prisons and he's, you know, off to Rwanda and he's doing stuff and, and, and it seems so different in some ways, but really it is that extraordinary power of, um, of storytelling and of regard it's what was very much a part of what drew me to, you know, wanting to be part of storytelling as an actor and a director. And it really is the core of what we do at Center for Counsel. It's a core in the core of the practice. It is, you know, how it is that, you know, listening attentively and speaking authentically gives us the capacity to connect and create relationships that lead to compassion. It's a hugely, um, you know, uh, profound and, and far reaching. Um, and in, in some ways, it's what I've always done. Yes, um, I guess uh, we'll start at the beginning because I think one of the the things that um, um, at least you know I, I know a lot of people these days because it became popular, especially um, during the pandemic, because you were you know <laughs> locked in your box. Um, <laughs> that therapy 
became, you know, uh, you know, a, a popular word. Um, but then now you have this word council. So what is council? You know, it's a great question. And thank you. It's a, it's a bit confusing because there are two words in the English language. One is spelled C-O-U-N-C-I-L and the other is C-O-U-N-S-E-L. And they mean very different things. Council is not counseling. Um, council is this practice of coming together to speak authentically and listen um, um, from the heart. Um, the word counseled is derived from concilium, which is a Latin word um, that was used by Benjamin Franklin when he was invited to um, see the Haudenosaunee folks who were the people of the Longhouse practicing in this community-building way. He knew Latin, and he said, oh, this is a concilium, this is council. That means a gathering of people. And this is a gathering where everybody is valued. And so that's sort of where that word came from. I think it was a, you know, a, a sort of a, a European-oriented um, white guy who knew Latin looking at a practice that he didn't quite understand and trying to come up with a word for it. And it's an imperfect word. But it is a practice that is um, so uh, common throughout the world. And as I've traveled, I've recognized the practice called many different things. In Africa, in, in Rwanda, you know, the folks recognize it as Ibiduramo, which is where the elders would get together around a big vat of banana beer and, and take a straw and, and sip it and talk one at a time. And Sierra Leone, it's called Fumble Talk. In other parts of Africa, Dare or Ho'oponopono in Hawaii or Ma'agal Hakshava in Hebrew traditions, Dare and Loya Jirga. Quakers practice like this. Um, when we sit and listen, when we speak one at a time from the heart and we listen without judgment, um, something extraordinary happens. Uh, we set aside what we think we know and we discover um, maybe what's outside our comfort zone about ourselves and each other. And it really is predicated on this ability to listen and speak from the heart, to be curious and um, hear the words of the person um, with an open-heartedness that we don't often extend to people who don't look like us or don't come from the same place or maybe don't vote for the same person we voted for or don't worship the way we do or love the way we do or come from the same class. We tend to make a lot of judgments and our listening to others uh, is really conditioned by who we think they are. And often that um, robs us of the opportunity to see how much we have in common with folks, even if it's a diversity of folks. And even if they're not people we, dis we agree with, um, something amazing happens when we give ourselves permission to listen without judgment. Like we listen to, you know, nature, the, the, the sound of the waves at the beach. You know, we don't have to agree or disagree with the waves. We can just listen and we understand about the surf or the birds, you know, tweeting. We're not... We don't have to have an opinion and, and agree with the bird to appreciate the sound of their chirping. Um, so something about that quality of listening is really um, kind of magical. And similarly, when we allow ourselves to speak in such a way that we're really, we're really giving voice to what's alive in us, not the story we think we have to tell or what we have always told or what people told us we should tell, but really what's alive in the moment, um, that permission to be our authentic self with a group of people, knowing that they've come to really just listen without judgment is a really uh, transformative and beautiful uh, community building process that gives us the this hit of social connection that is so critical to our well-being uh, and that enables us in a, in a group of folks um, to find our voice and to recognize things about others that we might not have seen um, had we just judged them based on 
you know, what we see on the outside. Uh, in many cases, we've made decisions about, you know, I'm, I'm with you, I'm against you. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you're one of them. Oh, I can't really listen to what you have to say because uh, I hate you already because of what I know you've, you've done out in the world. Um, these are, are really destructive tendencies we have to make these kind of snap judgments and it robs us of so much ability to create relationships and to create community, uh, to build trust and to create the conditions for compassion to arise. And again, it doesn't mean we're agreeing with everybody in the world. It just means we're creating a, a civil and a respectful and an authentic space to come together. Council, I think you could think of it as a structure of belonging, really. It's a place we arrive where we just have to be ourselves and others agree to listen and everyone gets a chance to have a voice. Um, and it has been really transformational uh, in the places we have brought it into schools and prisons and organizations and tech firms and finance, um, as well as law enforcement um, and uh, with first responders, including doctors and nurses who are extraordinarily overwhelmed by the stress they face. You know, what, a, what an incredible relief to be able to come to a place where you can really be your true self with others who are there to just listen and everyone gets a chance. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what council is and our organization is really um, organized to bring these programs out into the world in a way that's of value. I, I, I love it because it is, it is, a you know, um, of course, you know, when you, 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 you started the organization, um, you know, Obviously, listening is always important, but we are in a, um, uh, people have so many different names for it now. Some people are like, we're in the pivot, we're at the tipping point, you know, we're starting yeah. Armageddon. Um, <clears throat> we're in the end days. Um, <laughs> you know, there's so many yeah. different names now, right? Uh, right. So um, it's, it's, this is like so critical um, it is like, um, what I'll say it's, it's essentially our oxygen for our society, mm -hmm. right. Um, mm -hmm. that we, mm -hmm. we need to have that time to listen because if, if we don't right now, um, I don't know if we can, you know, I, I don't mean to be doomsday, but I don't know if we can move on successfully because we're at 8 mm -hmm. billion people now, right. Um, probably mm -hmm. a little bit more because, you know, every day somebody's born. Um, <clears throat> so now we are at, uh, you know, a, a critical time that we have to kind of make a decision of, um, you know, who we are and how we plan to move forward. And so, you know, there's there's so many issues. It's it's overwhelming. I'm sure you, you feel that sometimes you're like, oh my goodness, I just dealt with this and now this and this and this and this. And so to have that ability to know, okay, the core, even if we have like, you know, 8 billion problems and I'm, because uh, at least everybody has some kind of problem going on, um, that we can uh, narrow those problems down or um, or maybe not narrow them down, but get them under control if we just sit and we listen um, to each person and get their perspective, which could then, you know, um, uh, I guess uh, help us um, not always get to a solution because some of these problems are just, you know, we're not going to solve them. Um, <clears throat> but just to understand um, where somebody is coming from 
um, and and their experience and you know their per- perception um, makes a difference that you know in, in your results has been uh, profound, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I guess it, it, where we are to, uh, today, right? Um, uh, there's I, I'm like I have so many um, different ways I could uh, could go with what you have um, just said. Um, you know, we find our, our, ourselves in a time of, um, I would say that, uh, you know, of, of confusion, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know mm-hmm. how else to put it. Um, we find ourselves in confusion, um, times of, uh, of violence, um, and um, I guess you'd just say monumental, monumental change. So with all these things that are, uh, I guess, uh, pushing up against us and with all the different situations that, um, uh, that you have uh, dealt with, I guess, how do you, how do you make this that it's, um, you know, digestible for each person? Because I would think that this is just my opinion. I could be wrong, but like when you have your meetings that people just come in and they're just, they feel heavy. There's like a billion Mm -hmm. things pushing on them and they're just like, okay, now, um, you know, uh, how is this really going to, uh, push us forward. So how, I guess, how do you approach some of these like really complex problems and make it, um, you know, uh, feel achievable to people or that they can yeah. make a difference? Yeah. And, and accessible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. And it is, you know, sort of my, my, my life's work at this point. Um, and I appreciate your framing of this. I'll, I'll go back to what you were saying about the sort of end times Armageddon talk. It's really rough out there, I will say. And having traveled a great deal and seen, you know, I've spent some time in Oswiecim, which is where Auschwitz is in Poland, and um, to see, to sit on the tracks, you know, on the selection platform and to to really be there, to go into the children's barracks and the ash pond and the, the crematoria, and to be with a group of people who are, you know, not the children, but the grandchildren of folks who were there, uh, who had experienced either being... Um, you know, the victims, uh, survivors, or even the folks who were assigned to work there, you know, the, the, the guards who were dropping the cans of Zyklon B into the, you know, the, into the, the, uh, showers, there is, um, such trauma that is carried generationally. And I will say, you know, third generation, fourth generation trauma, um, we are moving in a direction as a, you know, as a culture that is not that different from things that have happened in places like Auschwitz and like Rwanda and like Bosnia-Herzegovina, even, you know, tribal lands here in the, in the States, our own history is sort of checkered in terms of how we have um, perpetrated enormous violence um, on folks we consider to be the other. You know, it's the problem is them. It's us and them. And they are the problem because they are whatever they are, because they belong to the group that we have decided is the one causing all the problems. And so, you know, there's a cycle and it begins with, you know, a lot of messaging and propaganda and stuff in the news. And, you know, people start kind of whispering and then there are little kind of acts of aggression and then those get a little worse. And then all of a sudden there are acts of violence and then there are laws and we, it's a slippery slope. Um, so I just want to underline that uh, we are experiencing things that have led to real tragic circumstances around the world. We are hearing things and experiencing our culture, whether you're listening to 
you know, uh, news that comes from a, you know, a right wing source and you're hearing about the libs and the, you know, the, the sort of Antifa kind of uh, problem or you're listening on the other side to MSNBC and you're hearing about the MAGA people. And there's this vilifying of the other as being not just the people you disagree with, but monsters who are creating um, the end days for our whole civilization. And that has really worked us up uh, around this idea that we have to really hate the other. Uh, very, very dangerous. And I think the antidote to that is listening to the other and realizing, you know what? They're not that different. If you hear their story and if you ask some questions and give them some containment where we're not debating philosophy or policies, we're just hearing their story. Um, Barack Obama, before he was even a senator as a community organizer, he would have these town meetings. And this was a story told by uh, Joshua Dubois, who was his head of faith-based initiatives, he, he said um, Obama would bring folks together in a, in a town meeting and he wouldn't ask them, like, what do you think about the policy around X, Y, Z? He'd say, tell me a story about how, how the healthcare system has affected your family or how the conflict overseas and, and, and military services affected your family. And when you get people talking about their personal stories, you know, you can't agree or disagree. <laughs> I mean, you can just, you can not listen. But it's their story. And when you go to the story, when you go to the essence of what they're experiencing, it's just a question of whether you have the capacity and the generosity to take a moment to listen, uh, because it's not necessary for you to debate it out. It's just their story. And so counsel really brings us to that point where we're focusing on being present and paying attention and engaging with folks who have come together um, to really share some of who they are. And listening is a kind of shorthand for that. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a physiological level on which um, listening is a function of a nervous system that is primed to be discerning and relational and reasonable, uh, as opposed to being defensive and combative and uh, evasive. That is a dysregulation of our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system called sympathetic, you know, tone or sympathetic overdrive. It's the fight, flight, freeze response. And we are we are in that space so much of the time, you know, we're worked up in our, 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 you know, um, anatomy, you know, our, our physiology is driving us to the place where we are not listening and we're not being discerning. We're not being relational. We're seeing a uniform and freaking out, or we're hearing, you know, words, I can't breathe and not even understanding what they mean. You know, we, we lose our capacity to be relational human beings when we allow ourselves to be worked up in this way. Um, and our, you know, our prefrontal cortex is there to bring us back into a kind of ability to be relational again. It, it, it regulates this nervous system. We don't use it a lot. It's what happens when, you know, we listen to another or when we pay attention to the present moment, you know, when you're when your mom told you, you know, you're, you're so upset, count to 10, it was a, it was a neurological <laughs> intervention to tell you to like bring on, you know, this abstract thought of numbers because you'll activate your prefrontal cortex. And when you do that, you'll be back in your right mind and you can actually see the people around you in the situation with some discernment. When we lose that capacity, when we're constantly in this dysregulated state, um, we're headed for violence. We're headed for um, all kinds of disruptive and antisocial behaviors. Um, and our current condition is one in which we've got that, 
you know, if it's an accelerator and a brake, the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, we got the accelerator down most of the time and we don't really know how to hit the brakes. So we tend to move through the world with a, a lot of stress and a lot of dread um, and a lot of um, uh, distraction from what's right in front of us. And when we stop and listen, when we stop and pay attention, we bring on a kind of a, a regulation um, that coupled with being connected to others is a critical um, uh, nourishment for being a healthy person. And I think, just to say one more thing, and I think this is important, we have, you know, America's doctor, you know, our, our surgeon general, Dr. Vivek Murthy, is um, extraordinary on the point of this epidemic we are experiencing of social disconnection and loneliness. We are, as a nation, isolated and lonely. Over 50% of the population experiences that, and it is a critical component of our health, not just our social health and social well-being, but we are making ourselves sick. In fact, the latest uh, advisory says it is akin to smoking 10 to 15 cigarettes a day is what we're doing to our health by being disconnected and being kind of like siloed off. It is hurting us. It's leading to addiction and mental health issues and violence and all kinds of other destructive um, social conditions, as well as real physical um, health implications for individuals. And, and it's great to have science on our side now. You know, we know it feels good to, to be relational in community, but now we've got the nation's doctor showing us how our physiology is being really messed up by isolating ourselves and by not connecting with others and having the capacity to tell our story. So I think we've got the wind at our back and I think we've um, you know, we're, we're making an important case now about how we need to stem the tide of this isolation and this sense of disconnection by bringing people together um, to be able to tell their story and listen to one another. It's a, it's a really critical time to do that on all kinds of levels. Now, I'm, one of the things, you know, that uh, uh, I, I, I loved about um Center for Counsel is that you take a holistic approach. So you're looking at everything and you just, you know, you kind of just mentioned it right now um, with everything you were saying about, you know, it's not just about, um, you know, uh, people being angry about an issue. It's actually become, uh, you know, infiltrated into who they are and it's now affected them um, not only from, you know, uh, you know, I'm upset about, you know, my candidate didn't win or, you know, they took away um, this law. Um, but it's like it, it, now everybody that is, you know, um, that was either uh, for the other candidate um, now becomes my enemy. I then have to go into mm -hmm. a protective mode. Um, mm -hmm. I now have to change where I go because they, you know, hang out the places yeah, that, yeah. and it, it starts to become, you know, who they are essentially. And so I like that the fact that you are trying to, uh, you know, peel back the onion and get back to each person's core. And so one of the things though, that is, um, I guess nerve wracking in this uh, current society is saying what you feel like really saying what you feel. And so why, I guess, um, why have we, uh, and this didn't just happen overnight, um, I guess, why are we afraid to tell people how we really feel in this society? Yeah, it, it's a great question. I, you know, the first thing I would, I'd like to say about that is um, I would never, 
start a council by saying, you know, how do you feel about it? Don't talk about your feelings. I think that immediately sets people on edge. Uh, mm-hmm. We ask folks to tell a story. And when they tell a story from their life, uh, something emerges that isn't about therapy. It's therapeutic, mm-hmm. but it really isn't about let's get into sort of indulging in this kind of uh, ruminating place where we're just describing emotions. We're really talking about the things that have happened in our life that have led us to this place. And um, I've got to say that um, it's understandable. I mean, it's an act of great vulnerability to share of yourself in this way, particularly if you feel that you're in an environment that is you know, ne- not necessarily aligned. If, if you're not in your club and you're in group and um, you're being asked to be vulnerable, um, it can be dangerous to you. Um, we work in prisons where um, we, as a condition of these groups, bring together folks who are rival gang members, who are, you know, groups who are on the yard. And I'm not talking about like, you know, kind of what they call prison land, this sort of like easy prisons. I'm talking about maximum security level four, you know, lifers who are active on the yard in gangs. And, you know, there are stabbings and killings every day. And folks are opposed to one another because, you know, they align with this gang or that gang. And, you know, in prison, that should, that, that is a, a justification for, um, you know, for violence. When they come into the space of counsel, this structure, um, there is this incredible act of courage in telling the story of your life. When you begin to talk about where you come from and a story that defined you and you see in the eyes of others who are just there to listen, the sense of recognition, like, oh man, that's my story. You're telling my story. I can't, I'm feeling you in a way that I shouldn't feel you because you're the enemy, but here I am experiencing something as I listen to you. And that sort of act of courage in sharing that way uh, invites someone else to share as well. Um, Brene Brown talks about this a great deal that there's, you know, that, that all acts of courage boil down to vulnerability and yet we don't train in vulnerability. We often find that people are very uncomfortable with vulnerability, but vulnerability leads to trust. You know, when we share something true about ourselves and our story, um, it encourages others. We create a vulnerability loop as, uh, uh, Daniel Coyle says, he's got a, a great book called, um, the culture code about high performing, um, organizations and and groups that there is this extraordinary um, um, emergence of trust that follows vulnerability. And and we often think it should be the other way. It's like when you trust people, you can be vulnerable. Well, I think the science is showing us when you're vulnerable, then you trust. And so the vulnerability comes in asking folks to tell a story that maybe is a personal story that you're usually not asked to tell. Not to give, you know, analysis of, you know, why you're angry or, you know, your deepest, darkest wounds or, you know, what makes you, you know, keeps you up at night. And, you know, we're not going to to trauma. We're not therapists here. We're asking folks to tell a story of something that's up for you. And in doing that, we see the emergence of this extraordinary um, embodiment of compassion. And when you're listened to, And when somebody actually takes the time to take you in and you see in their eyes the resonance, there's something uh, just infectious about it. It feels good. You know, it feels good to be seen and heard. And it encourages you to lean in and and share a little bit more. And what we see as we do these programs, certainly in prisons, is that uh, extraordinary transformation happens in a group of folks who've never been invited to be their true, authentic self. They all of a sudden come every Tuesday night or whatever, whatever night it is, and they sit in these council circles and they tell these stories and they realize they're so much more 
than what society has told them they are. And this sort of CDCR number they carry around that's less than human, just as the numbers on the wrists of the folks in Auschwitz or the markings that have delineated people who have been made the other in societies. Uh, the council circle enables us to recover um, our, our full humanity, our real story. And that is um, something you need to be skillful um, in introducing. You don't just start with something real heavy. You know, you, you have um, a skillfulness in the container building um, because it is a container, the structure of belonging I talk about. There is a certain amount of, you know, a ritual involved in that we know, you know, if you're a, a sports team, you know, you have a, you huddle up and then you have a, you know, one, two, three, go team. There's like, there are cues that remind us that this is where we belong and we're, we're, we're in it together. We are, you know, we are a unit together. Um, and then the invitation to tell a story and when you're not speaking to really listen to understand and be curious, um, has this extraordinary impact. I think once folks experience it, uh, you just have to come back. You just feel like I, I need this in my life. This is the place where I'm truly who I am. This is where I can emerge as the best version of myself. And I can recognize people that I had written off as being, um, valuable. And, uh, I feel the connection and, you know, it's, it's, it's cheap. It's affordable. It's uh, you don't need to, you know, pay a therapist to do it. You just need to create this opportunity and folks take care of this container in such a way that it benefits everybody. It becomes a real nourishing and generative um, area for uh, inviting us to to find that true voice and to help each other along in something that doesn't exist in other places in our lives in many cases. And so if you do it in your family or in your workplace or in a school classroom or, you know, even in a prison or a police precinct, uh, it's available to you. Um, and there's no stigma around it being, you know, group therapy or, you know, the place where broken people go or something or a AA meeting or something that is, you know, requires that you identify as somebody who is uh, broken. You just come as you are. And, and it has an incredible uh, impact on, um, on, on how you feel about yourself and how you feel about the folks you're in it with. Now, I, I like I like that you took the approach of uh, take the feelings out and tell a a story because um, you know as far as uh, I'm a National Geographic junkie and I uh, like to go um, uh, into history, so I guess uh, t from caveman days and maybe beyond, whatever we were doing before we got to the cave, um, um, <laughs> that people like to uh, sit around and tell stories, and you know, and mm -hmm. stories were the way that, you know, you teach uh, young children, uh, you know, uh, different things. Um, so the story is uh, so important because it gets us to listen um, mm -hmm. <laughs> versus uh, when we're in uh, lectures or, you know, um, all these other things that we could be, uh, you know, uh, a part of. But uh, stories uh, draw us in. That's why, of course, we love uh, movies and all of those types of entertaining stuff. Um, and so I wanted to uh, dive into um, uh, uh, for you to tell me about the Center for Council's uh, Peace Officer Wellness, Empathy and Resilience. Uh, uh, they're the I guess you would call it the uh, power training program um, yes. to tell us a, a little bit about it, how you came um, to, I guess, develop it and uh, what it does. 
Yeah, thanks for asking about it. You know, I, I've been talking about this work in prisons. We're actually in 29 prisons now around California. So there's thousands, thousands of folks who are um, learning these practices. You know, they're bringing them to their families. They're they're doing them on the yard. When guys walk out of, uh, you know, a meeting like this who are, you know, just sort of clearly enemies uh, being friendly and talking to one another and taking a walk around the yard, it changes the conditions on the yard in a really remarkable way. Uh, and these folks are coming home, you know, 95% of them are coming back into the neighborhood. And it's really important that something happens in there that gives them uh, tools and skills and a vision of the kind of life they want to live when they return. Um, I had um, a, a lot of work in these prisons for a while and saw this transformation and was so moved by it. And I noticed that the correctional officers were very resistant and uh, sometimes kind of brutal. There were incidents on the yard where they'd come in screaming and yelling and, and pushing people around. And um, the folks inside had realized that, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to survive in there, you're going to have to listen to what they have to say. And there was a real sense of why are they acting so, um, you know, inhumanely when, when guys here are trying to make a change in their lives. I, I had that thought at first. And then when I kind of paused, I realized that uh, they're under an enormous amount of stress. And in many instances, um, all they've got, you know, it, 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 like they say, all they got is a hammer, so everything looks like a nail. You know, they have these um, uh, skills for controlling chaos, um, and they use them. But the amount of stress they're under, and the amount of fear they're experiencing, and the amount of pain they're in, uh, having to do things um, that wrap them up in all kinds of moral distress. Um, and the burnout that is engaged in, you know, doing this, this high stress work it made me feel like, you know, there are systems that dehumanize and everybody needs resources. Um, there was a time where there was a great deal going on, um, in terms of officer involved, uh, shootings and excessive use of violence. And, uh, there was a movement to be sort of punitive about that. And I sort of felt like that's a really inappropriate way to deal with law enforcement that's under-resourced. You got to look you know, upstream, um, at, at what the training looks like with folks, uh, to understand what's happening downstream in communities or in these, um, sort of, uh, inappropriate behaviors that are so harmful. You know, folks are not being taught how to take care of themselves. Folks are not being taught what it is to go into a profession where, you know, you are surrounded by this, this landscape of suffering, as my friend Rich Gerling says, by constant stressors from incident to incident, you know, from watch to watch, and you don't have the skills to turn off that stress. You don't, you're, you're in this sympathetic overdrive all the time. And, you know, the maladaptive way of dealing with that is, you know, get a couple of 10, you know, shots of tequila or, you know, be violent or hypersexuality and all kinds of ways that folks deal with their stress that are not actually dealing with their stress. It's actually making it worse. It's masking it. Um, but they find themselves in this situation as law enforcement officers, including correctional officers, where they are giving up what by some studies is 20 to 22 years of their life just by joining this profession. I mean, they are not only, these are not in the line of duty deaths. These are stress related deaths that, you know, you make it to retirement and you're just a wreck. So at 59, before you see your 60th birthday, you know, you're having a heart attack, you know, you're having early onset Alzheimer's, you're having a stroke. There are all kinds of health conditions that are impacting them and they're not even getting to see retirement. This is, absolutely untenable and unconscionable. And I think that if we're going to, you know, entrust folks with the public safety, you know, of, of our communities, we can't, um, 
deprive them of the skills that they need to function um, through this very difficult terrain. And not only um, do we understand um, what happens in terms of the outcomes in communities, and they are bad, um, but we understand what happens to their health. And President Obama had a task force on 21st century policing that laid out six pillars about building trust and legitimacy and officer wellness and all kinds of things. Central in that is, you know, this concept of procedural justice, of how officers listen to communities and how communities feel that they are seen and listened to. Not necessarily that, you know, the, the police are agreeing with them, but just that they feel seen. And this is not a skill that's taught. And so we were able to um, get a grant um, to start to experiment with this. Our first uh, project was with the Los Angeles Police Department. We wound up training seven cohorts of about 25 officers, uh, and remarkable things happened. Um, it didn't happen at first. You know, they didn't show up all excited about this. There was a lot of eye rolling and crossed arms and, you know, we're going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, what's all this? Um, and then at the same time, you know, I don't need uh, counseling. I'm fine because there's a lot of stigma in that. But what happened as we began to talk about what's going on in the autonomic nervous system, how it is we can interrupt this stress response, how it is we can manage it to some extent, and how it is we can understand uh, how our discernment is affected by being dysregulated and what it means to take a breath on that traffic stop when you see it going sideways and understand if you take a, a breath and step back, you might get a different kind of outcome than what might happen if you just allowed yourself to tumble into this cascade of dysregulation. Um, this is grounded in these officers coming together on their own and sitting in council. We call them huddles. They huddle up in council and they do it once a week. And what they get out of these sessions together, and they're self-facilitated, we teach them how to do it and they do it on their own, um, is just remarkable. Um, I, what I'm excited about, I think, in this is not only their testimonials, and we've got a, a video on our website where you can hear them talking about what they got out of it. It's really uh, surprising and wonderful. But the surveying we've been doing, the pre and post surveys, the quantitative data, and now the biometric data that really gives us a chance to look at the physiology, you know, what's happening with heart rate variability, coherence, and, and how is it that, you know, what we're seeing uh, over the course of the three months they're doing our program is changing health outcomes, is creating you know, measurable differences in their health profile. So in many cases, you know, they don't have to take their blood pressure medicine anymore. And their, you know, their doctors are saying, you know, why, why are you so healthy? What's, what are you doing differently? And what they say is, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm paying attention and I'm sitting with my peers and once a week we, we drop in and it feels really, you know, I leave there feeling lighter. And, and my wife tells me I'm a nicer person. And my kids want to hang out with me. And, you know, I feel like offering this kind of resource to law enforcement is so critically important, both in terms of their sustainability and health, but in terms of the way they meet the community. And it was only possible to see that uh, because we were doing essentially the same program inside prison with, you know, folks with life sentences having the same kind of uh, impact. And I had this aha moment in doing this program that everybody needs this and everybody will be served by it. Uh, so this uh, Peace Officer Wellness, Empathy, and Resilience, or POWER is the acronym. The program was uh, certified in California as um, something that um, is uh, accredited for officers. They, they need a certain number of these points every year to be recertified. And now it's accredited across the nation. Uh, it's nationally certified, so uh, agencies across the country are 
uh, able to take advantage of this um, program, which is really exciting. Uh, we have a partnership with the Department of Justice now um, where we are working together to increase law enforcement awareness of the intersectionality uh, of wellness, compassion, procedural justice, and community building. Um, it's it's science-based, you know, uh, but it's also about uh, understanding the critical importance of social connection um, and uh, teaching a whole range of practices um, and tools for officers to, um, you know, maintain their health and well-being um, and also uh, manage things like empathy, fatigue, and moral distress and the depersonalization and burnout Um and the last thing I'll say is, you know, it's not just police officers, it's doctors, it's nurses, it's firefighters, it's EMTs, it's folks who work in high stress professions where, you know, around every corner, there's a crisis. And um, we, we put ourselves in this fight, flight, freeze mode. And, um, you know, it's really important when it's go time, when you have to do something where that's required, but it's really dangerous to your health to stay there. And we often don't know how to come off of that. And these techniques, you know, counsel, mindfulness, breathing, understanding the autonomic nervous system, these are all ways we can create healthy cyclicity in our autonomic nervous system and not only feel better and, you know, be more um, positive in our relationships with the community, but live longer and be healthier. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to do it. And I'm, I feel like it's what the world needs. It's certainly what, um, what folks who are under stress need, uh, just to give them the resources to, uh, to retain their health, to, to thrive, to feel good about their work. Um, and, uh, for communities to, um, appreciate what they do rather than, uh, resent them and, um, and cause more strife. You know, I love this, um, approach because you are, uh, one of the things I think, well, I'm sure, um, not only you, but uh, police, everybody is, uh, you know, the, the face of law enforcement, specifically in the, the U.S., um, you know, has a, a has gotten a, a negative rap. Right. And so, um, uh, you know, that's added stress, I would assume. Um, you know, I'm not a police officer myself, but I would assume that's added stress along with the daily job that now, you know, you have the, um, uh, uh, the horrible job of what I'll call, um, well, this is like way back when, uh, being like the hall monitor, um, that everybody didn't like. Right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and yes. having, uh, and having that as your, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, image out there um, has to add, you know, even additional stress um, to the job. So it's nice that you are working to um, uh, work from an internal perspective with each of the um, officers and um, then helps them to, uh, you know, reach the, the community in a different way, deal with their daily lives and not take so much home. Because it's got to be, mm -hmm. it's it's got to be a heavy job, I guess. You know, I'm sure you've talked to in, uh, officers individually. Um, what are some mm -hmm. things that you have found? Like, what don't people know about what it's like to be a police officer? You know, I, I uh, as I said, we we managed to capture some of the sharing that they did uh, when they feel comfortable sharing, and it's on our website and. 
um, I would encourage folks to you'd be blown away by what um, we learn when we just listen to what they have to say about themselves, particularly officers who come from um, communities that have a lot of problems with law enforcement and they love their community and they love the officers and they're in a bind um, and they feel that everywhere they turn, they're hated. Um, so there is a, a toxic environment uh, within the agency as well as in the community. And then coming home, you don't feel like you want to dump it on your spouse. You don't really feel like you can talk to your parents about it. Um, there's nowhere to go. And it's, um, it's an extraordinary burden that folks feel. I mean, generally speaking, I think folks have joined the force because they want to protect and serve. I, I really believe that on some deep level, it's a noble profession. Um, that I don't think begins with people misbehaving, but I think very quickly it becomes overwhelming. And there are some maladaptive ways that people deal with the overwhelm. Um, and that overwhelm comes in all directions. It's not just, you know, the, 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 the sort of the physical threat. It's this very um, uh, toxic culture inside the agencies. It's a real sense of, um, you know, moral distress, as I said. Uh, empathy fatigue, you can't really go down the rabbit hole with people that you can't help and you watch that suffering and, and you become very close to it and you can't take it on because it'll take you down. Even this concept of pathological altruism, that folks really want to help and they help and help and realize you know, they're giving too much and they've they've spent themselves and that leads to burnout. There, there's so many um, crises around um, wanting to do the right thing and being stuck, either not being able to do the things they feel they should do or being forced to do things they're told to do but know are wrong. Um, it really um, creates a, a real pretzel inside and, and gets folks in places that are, are really difficult to understand um, and talk about. And unless you are sitting with your peers, unless you trust a group of folks you know, who have your back, who are with you in your unit, uh, unless the agency has normed this, there's no resource. You know, There's, there's been a, a movement in policing for peer support which is essentially other officers coming to work with you when there's a critical incident and there's been damage or trauma. But this is after the fact. And frankly, it's too little too late. You know, there, there isn't um, training in the academies and there isn't a culture within the agencies that give folks space to talk about the difficulties, the overwhelm, and even the triumphs and the things that you're kind of excited about. Um, because, you know, there's nowhere to turn really for a lot of these officers. So just the benefit of coming together in this way and owning your own little huddle um, and having the opportunity to show up once a week. Um, you know, this is coupled with a lot of material and curriculum that we give them. Every week we send them an assignment that's a podcast or that's, um, you know, a video or an article and then a mindfulness practice, something they can do, and then a writing assignment. And then they come into their little huddle and they've got a bunch of material to talk about with regard to sleep or the food they eat, or the way they have experienced gratitude, you know, the way they've expressed gratitude or felt like it's been expressed to them. Um, There's so many uh, aspects of listening, of, of awareness, and we take them through a three-month, um, you know, really robust curriculum where we ask them to think of these things and then create this as I said before, this structure of belonging, this council huddle, uh, where they have an internal resource for being able to unpack this, to learn from their peers, maybe to say some things and to uh, speak about some stuff that uh, wouldn't normally be spoken of. Um, and that resource becomes, um, you know, something that they, they protect and benefit from, much like the folks inside prisons. 
And you're right, it's difficult for the public to understand what they go through. Um, and you have all kinds of opinions about that. We project onto them uh, a, a whole lot of stuff uh, because of the uniform they wear. We don't usually get a chance to hear their real story. And sometimes uh, when you do, um, it's it's overwhelming, it's heartbreaking, it's inspiring, it's amazing. And I feel very privileged to um, know some officers uh, pretty intimately, having sat in council with them, uh, and get to see them in ways that uh, you wouldn't normally think um, would reveal themselves uh, with somebody who looks like that and walks around like that. Um, but just, uh, you know, hearing an officer talk about, you know, a pet bunny that their kid brought home that they adopted and, and now sleep with, cuddled up with, and, and watching the way that kind of inspires stories and others. And all of a sudden, there's a, there's a whole quality, there's a whole spectrum of um, uh, character that you've seen in that person because they shared a story that they wouldn't normally have shared, and you, and you see them differently, and you feel differently about them. Um, and I think that you bring these qualities of um, really uh, speaking authentic, authentically and, and being able to listen without judging, you know, when you've been doing this, you bring that to the community. And while I never recommend starting with a group, you know, that is so mixed in which you have, you know, a, a sense of, um, um, you know, antagonism that's uh, so fresh and trying to go deep in that kind of way, I think that very quickly uh, something emerges where a curiosity about the other uh, is present and you start to ask questions and you begin to think, oh gosh, that person has a story. There's a little bit of a, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, it could have been me who, you know, was the person I arrested if I, if things had gone differently or, you know, I grew up with somebody that looked a lot like you and there's a lot of uh, capacity for empathy that is revealed that, um, takes a little while to get to, uh, but it's there and I, and I'm confident in it and I'm really grateful and inspired that I got, you know, I have gotten to see so much of it. Uh, I think that this will really transform uh, the experience of a lot of police officers as we continue to roll it out around the country. And I really appreciate the, the Department of Justice embracing this as uh, a way to bring more resources to more officers um, who critically need it. And, and again, as I said, I think all first responders could benefit. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, um, it's it's wonderful that you've been able to get um, you know, that personalized perspective. And yes, watch the video. I watched the video. Um, it was uh, definitely eye-opening. And, um, you know, you finally, not that I didn't, I guess I've always, because uh, I grew up in a home with uh, first res first responders from the on the medical side. Um, so, you know, they interacted with um, uh, police officers a lot because, you know, people get in accidents and end up in the hospital. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, but getting to see that human side of how, you know, um, their families uh, deal with things, how, you know, they're away from their children a lot, um, how, um, you know, they have to process these different, um, you know, tragedies that happen to the different families that they run into um, and how mm -hmm. these families, you know, expect them to be kind of the, you know, the pillow to cry on essentially. Um, right. And, you know, and yeah. I'm, you know, and I'm, and I'm, I'm speaking to that being that, you know, I was uh, a child of uh, first responders um, that uh, dealt with the, you know, medical conditions. So I know, um, you know, in my family that, uh, you know, parents would get pulled out, uh, you know, you might be in the midst of a, 
a birthday party or um, some other kind mm-hmm. of, you know, fun family event. And then, you know, uh, mom or dad has to go run to the hospital um, to go take care of uh, whatever situation. So they are taking time out of their own lives then to, um, you know, deal with these uh, situations in ways that um, a lot of people don't know. You know, I have to say, Henry, I got to jump in. Um, mm-hmm. My my wife is a physician, um, and her experience of physician burnout and the extraordinary uh, overwhelm, doctors and nurses for sure, is um, it's really tragic. But there's something really um, destructive. I think um, I think physicians realize it, and uh, the majority recommend that their children do not follow them into that profession because mm-hmm. of what they have experienced. The numbers are really terrifying about, you know, their own personal experience. But, you know, we have noticed this extraordinary decline in, um, in, in medical professionals ability to actually listen to their patients. You know, there are times when, um, a patient telling their story. Um, I think that there, there's some studies in a book called compassionomics, which are really extraordinary that, um, patients need 17 seconds to really get the word out about their story. They need to be listened to for that long. And physicians um, get up to 11 seconds, and that's it. And um, at 11 seconds, they're unable to listen anymore. They just move on to the next thing. And just the capacity to develop sitting and settling and listening to your patient for another six seconds, generally, and of course, it varies, but that's just a, a number, but it's understandable that you know, we, we have to depersonalize at a certain point. We have to disconnect because it's just too much. And that's so dangerous to our humanity, our health, and, and also to the quality of care that is offered um, when, when uh, caregivers are just unable to sustain that level of compassion um, in, in these overwhelming jobs. There's something that needs to happen to give them resources to be able to show up um, and to not have depersonalized so much that they're completely disconnected. Um, just to get through their day and be able to get home and, and return to the birthday party that they that they missed and that they resent missing. It's it's really um, it, there's an enormous need. Yes, and indeed, um, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, <laughs> it's it's even funny that you say that because um, uh, I had a baby over the pandemic. Um, and all my doctors quit being uh, regular doctors. <laughs> Every doctor that I had, and that was about three of them, they all said, uh, I'm going a different route in life. <laughs> I got their letters. Um, so, you know, the pandemic uh, definitely, you know, took its toll, as we all know, on the For medical sure. staff. They were just like, uh, this is, you know, uh, this virus is crazy. My own life is at risk. Um, my family is, you know, chaotic at home because I have to do all the same mm-hmm. things as everybody else. Um, so yes, we are in a period of, um, you know, I, I, I would say still like last year, um, I looked at trauma, but I would say, you know, um, uh, because it was so, uh, mind boggling, I think that, uh, definitely the trauma, the traumatic experience, uh, still, um, continues for people in their mind. Yeah, for sure. Um, The other thing that I wanted to uh, talk to you about is that uh, recently uh, you've been working with also, you know, you have your power training program, but now you're even uh, part of uh, the U.S. uh, government and looking and and looking at, um, you know, our our total system. Right. Because um, after everything that's happened. Uh, everybody's like, we're in trouble. Um, you know, yes, we were in trouble before, but it became 
uh, very apparent. And so um, I think that's exciting that you've been asked to uh, take part of this because it's a it's a whole different approach, I think, than um, they've taken in the past. Um, if you want to yeah. speak a little bit about what you're doing. Well, I think, um, you know, we're, we, we've come to a point where we realize something needs to happen differently. You know, systems are really dehumanizing in, in so many ways. And I think that um, you know, politics is certainly um, an area that calls all kinds of anxiety for all kinds of reasons. Um, we understand that things happen slowly, but as I mentioned, the uh, the Surgeon General uh, Vivek Murthy is that that office is doing some extraordinary work, and I'm thrilled to be partnering with them in some ways to try to uh, bring forward the um, the critical need to look at this epidemic of loneliness and isolation. I think that's what the Surgeon General is really pushing out along with a couple other initiatives, but that in particular. And I think it's really resonating um, what it means in terms of policies and funding opportunities and an openness to programs like ours um, is really helpful, frankly, because as you know, as an executive director of a, of a nonprofit organization, my job is to find resources and make sure there's more opportunity. I mean, I understand the need for this. I see the extraordinary transformation in the lives of individuals in schools like the one my daughter went to and in police agencies and units where, you know, the reports are things are functioning at a whole different level because of the integration of some real humanizing practices, um, you know, amidst all this sort of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion talk, you know, at its core, folks really need to be valued and seen. They need to be met where they are to some extent, whether you're in a big corporation or a school or an agency and um, having some opportunity uh, built into these structures that give them the chance to really take a look at their own personal experience and have that be something that is valued, um, is transformative. So I appreciate our friends uh, on the federal level and uh, on the state level who have seen the value in this. I hope that will continue. I also um, I'm really interested in, in building more relationships with the foundations that fund us and individuals who see a resonance in this. And so we're always looking to build that. One of the things that has emerged for us is that while, you know, you and I can talk about what, what council looks like and sitting in a circle and, you know, passing a talking piece or talking one at a time and all that, it really is, um, uh, it's not the most important, uh, thing to talk about here. It's really the impact of this work. And so, uh, we are really shifting our focus towards this idea uh, of what happens when we start doing this kind of work. We we allow ourselves to see uh, our community as rich. We value diversity. We understand that beyond this notion of us versus them, there is an ability to function uh, in a way that is uh, respectful and civil and leads to a kind of a flourishing that um, we desperately need. And it's not the direction uh, that we're heading in in many ways, but it's something that can be uh, corrected and, and, and combated uh, with things like counsel and mindfulness and listening and uh, understanding more about the value, the critical value of social connection the you know humans are wired for that uh, but we become more and more isolated over time and knowing that social connection is uh, essential to our our long-term survival as essential as food and water um, is something that i think we've lost sight of uh, and that what we do significantly improves uh, the health and well-being not only of individuals but um, 
you know, it, it, it lowers the risk of premature, you know, mortality and, and death and um, physical outcomes and, and uh, mental outcomes and all kinds of things. Um, this is an incredible um, moment to uh, um, amplify this message of going beyond us and them. We have an initiative. It is part of our transition to talk about that. The initiative is just that, beyond us and them. And it becomes um, an aspiration uh, to live in a world where we don't get stuck in a silo and start hating on the other, um, where we value the opportunity to um, tell our authentic story, to be authentic, and to be attentive to others, to pay attention and to um, really develop the capacity to settle and listen without judgment. And that These qualities are um, creating, planting seeds uh, for the world we want our kids to grow up in and for generations to come. And it's uh, resisting this trend uh, to move towards isolation and fear and resentment. The, uh, the poet Rumi uh, has a wonderful poem uh, called The Great Wagon, which is quoted a lot. And it's where this phrase, you know, uh, beyond us and them comes from. And he talks about out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there's a field and I'll meet you there. And goes on to talk about um, that, uh, you know, ideas and language and, and even the phrase each other. Uh, doesn't really make any sense when we when we sit in that field and we recognize that we are profoundly interconnected and we need to find a way to coexist in order to get through it in order to make the world a, a place we want our kids to grow up in. So our sort of focus now is on what it means to talk about beyond us and them, what it means to have these programs available to schools and law enforcement inside prisons and rehabilitative programs for first responders um, and even, as I said, in, you know, in, in businesses where the corporate culture has become toxic and folks just don't want to come into work anymore. Um, and certainly um, when, when folks learn this, uh, they want to run out and do it with their families. <laughs> they have all kinds of ideas like, gosh, you know, I, I could I could sit around and do a council with my kids or with, uh, you know, the, the uncles and the aunties who are, you know, always so irascible. There, there's something about having the chance to give everybody you know, a, a few moments to say where they are and feel respected and listened to that really is, um, it, it's such a healthy and um, critical practice for us all to learn and to look for ways we can integrate it um, to make the world a, you know, a, a, a more um, healthy and, and flourishing place. Uh, we, we have to do this work now. It's critical. Um, and my job is to go out there and, and figure out how to, how to grow it and sustain it and make sure there are resources so that it's not just the, you know, the amount of folks we can reach, but that it's something folks uh, learn from and are inspired by and can take out into the world in all kinds of places that are, that are in need. You get me, um, uh, thinking in, in so many different, uh, ways. Um, that, you know, this is, you know, uh, just kind of a, a recap, um, you know, that uh, about uh, being able to listen to people um, and, you know, not have to, um, I guess, uh, the need to be right <laughs> doesn't have to be there. Just listen. Mm -hmm. um, hearing now exactly. there's the, the story without judgment, um, because that's the big thing right now in our lives is everything has a judgment on it already, even before you say it. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and then, you know, understanding, um, I guess understanding and dealing and being okay with 
the level of stress that you might be facing as a first responder type of person. Um, because I think at least this is my, um, uh, the way that I grew up is that the first responders in a way see themselves a little bit in, uh, uh, a superhero type of mode. And what I mean about that is that superheroes, when you see them, you know, on, uh, you know, in a movie or whatever, uh, you don't ever really see them have like a, a, a breakdown or a problem. Right. But also mm-hmm. superheroes tend to be not really human. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. they're like aliens exactly. and and you know yeah. have been like uh you know fallen into some like you know some uh toxic sewage that changed them so they're not really human right, <laughs> right. right. so right. that's exactly. the thing that we have to remember that you're not really you know you're, you're you still are human you just have this role that you have taken on um, and, and, and not to forget about that. And so, you know, from, I want to take this as a, a larger level, um, globally, because, you know, um, I know you have not only been working in the U S you've done things abroad. Um, and so in kind of, uh, wrapping this up and closing, um, what would you say as a society, um, that we need to, um, I guess, uh, really understand about ourselves in order to, um, you know, I guess, transcend all of these issues. This is a big one. I feel like this is, you know, Mm -hmm. one of those, um, (laughs) uh, what is it? Essay that could go on for like 50,000 pages. (laughs) Right. Um, uh, so uh, because what you have, what everything that you're saying, and the reason I'm asking you that question, it really comes down to um, uh, each each individual, right? And so, what would you say? I guess is going to be like that that message that you would like to get across to everyone of what they can do, because we can't change other people. That's the one thing. That's the one thing I've learned in life. You can't change another person, so you have to worry about changing yourself. So what should we right. be focusing on? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the wisdom is in that question. If you unpack it, I think I, I, I appreciate it very much. Uh, I think people often um, uh, misquote uh, Gandhi and say, you know, be the change you want to be. I think the larger quote is, if we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. Um, and then I think it goes on to say that um, as, a, as a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change around him. And we need not wait until we see what others do. I think that is the place where we do our work. I think that um, compassion begins when we allow ourselves to really hear and um, attune to suffering, um, that of others and that of ourselves. We can't leave ourselves out of that. And I think really dropping in and, and bearing witness, you know, hearing and perceiving um, the, the anguish that we, um, feel around us, we're moved to do something about it. And I think that's where compassion is different than empathy or sympathy or pity is that we, we move beyond that to include action that is, that is considered and skillful and that is beneficial. And that may be small action we take as we take care of ourselves or a small act of kindness that we offer a person or, you know, an animal or, 
the planet. Um, I think as we begin to uh, understand the critical importance of um, paying attention to the current moment, the present moment on purpose, um, without judging it, which is kind of the definition of mindfulness, then I think we are um, putting ourselves in a position where we can be agents of change. We can be um, vessels for compassion to emerge. Um, and these are, I think, the, the building blocks of compassion and making the world a better place. And I think it begins with us. Uh, it begins with um, a mind of curiosity and openness, a willingness to take a backward step uh, and really pay attention. And I think as we do that, uh, we recognize that there's some um, extraordinary uh, qualities, some innate human goodness that uh, sometimes we take for granted in ourselves and in others. And in celebrating that and really um, attuning to that, uh, I think we become very powerful and we become um, able to, um, you know, uh, I don't know if we're leaping tall buildings at a single bound, but there's certain things about uh, the, the, the superhero um, uh, image that I, that I like, Amory, I got to say, um, I think that there's a quality of superpower that comes from being able to become that next version of ourself and see in others the potential to transform from what we thought was there to something really meaningful and beautiful. Um, it takes slowing down. Uh, a practice like counsel is incredibly helpful. Uh, if you have access to it or you want to go read the book or we have online councils where folks can just sort of drop in for 90 minutes and see what that's like. Um, I think more and more of these kind of um, practices can be incredibly helpful uh, in our personal lives, in our work life, uh, in society. But it really does begin with us as an individual and how it is we, um, we really take the time um, to drop in and listen uh, and bear witness to, to it all. Um, and it doesn't um, end with uh, noticing and, and, and hitting a like on, on Facebook or, or Instagram. It, it requires us to really think about, okay, now that we recognize something, we recognize the need, what are we going to do about it? What, are we, what action are we going to take now? Where, where's, our, where's our resolve to do something, a small thing? Um, that, that switch that we turn on there, I think, uh, changes everything. It changes us internally, but it also changes the world. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> I like the answer. I like the answer. Um, thank you so much uh, for your time today, um, Jared, and uh, for the insights thank that you, you have uh, uh, brought to us. Um, I, I hope this uh, helps uh, people who are not only first responders, but uh, everyone to get a different perspective of, uh, you know, what we are dealing with, how to move forward, and that it's, uh, you know, your story is important and listening to other people's stories are also important because, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're a bunch of stories creating one big story, <laughs> essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so Exactly. Yes. So thank you, Jared, for your time and insight. If you'd like to learn more about Jared, you can go to centerforcouncil.org. If you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or simply want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.org to start your project of change today. We'd like to send our deepest gratitude to our ongoing show supporter, Blair Chapman. Subscribe to our mailing list at projectgood.work slash subscribe to get our episodes and blog articles sent to you each month. Plus, get a 10% discount on any project you start with projectgood.work. As part of our Project Good Changemaker community, sign up today at projectgood.work. 
our listeners, thanks for turning tuning in to Pod the Good, where we're focused on what matters. 